0: 1 Corinthians, uh, it starts off with the author and the date. I don't think there's any uh, (laughs) trouble in asserting that Paul wrote this. If you look in 1 Corinthians, if you go to the book, we'll look at several verses in it. I can't look at all of it, or we'll be here all night. But the first verse in chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sanstestes, our brother, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So Paul identifies that he wrote it. There's really no question about that. When he wrote it, about A.D. 55, is about the year that Paul wrote it from Ephesus. So Paul went and started the church in Corinth, and then he left and went to Ephesus, and then he gets some reports that uh, the the train's going off the track, (laughs) as they say. Uh, the church in Corinth is becoming a mess, and he did not like his reports, and so he's writing this letter to the church of Corinth that he started. Uh, back to the author, uh, it mentions throughout the book that he wrote it, so there's really no question about that. The Christian leaders throughout church history, Ignatius and Polycarp and Tertullian, they all said, uh, yeah, Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians. Key people in the book, you'll have Paul, uh, of course, Timothy is a missionary, a fellow missionary with Paul that assists him in the church in Corinth, and then members of Chloe's household, they're the ones that come and inform Paul that uh, the church is having some issues. They are undisciplined, and they need to be disciplined according to your teaching. The city of Corinth uh, is located southern Greece. I don't have a map to show you, but you could look it up in any Bible map. Uh, it's in the the province of uh, Achaia, 45 miles west of Athens. Uh, it's a port city. It's on a narrow isthmus. Uh, it's surrounded by water. It's a port city, and so it's got ships that come in, and they carry the stuff across the land a little bit, then they get on another ship, and they go out. major trade city. It's a Houston. It's a Hong Kong. It's a... It's a modern city in their day, trade city. Lots of traffic, lots of commerce, lots of secularism. Lots of people with all sorts of different backgrounds coming there. Um, It was famous originally for the the Isthmian Games, kind of like the Olympic Games, but not exactly. But there was another uh, big Games they did back then. This city was famous for its depravity. It would... It would be called a sin city. It'd be like the, their day, their Las Vegas. Okay? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. But it really didn't stay in Corinth. It got to Paul, and he wasn't happy with not just the city of Corinth, but actually the church in Corinth wasn't being any different from the world it was around. So major debauchery, moral depravity. It's a very, very vile city. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 6 9 through 10. And Paul will outline some of its problems. Uh, we'll look more specifically as we go through it. But verse 9 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom Okay, so there's list of some of the things that are going on. It sounds like a fine, fine church uh, and city. Uh, so there's some problems. Uh, the Greek cities were known for their Acropolis. It was a high city. They would build these 2,000 feet high uh, platforms whatever for defense, but mainly also mainly more for pagan worship. Uh, so Aphrodite, of course, is there, the Greek goddess of love. Uh, worshiping all sorts of idols. There's prostitutes, religious prostitutes, children prostitutes. I just want to paint the the picture of Corinth. Sexual immorality is running rampant throughout the city and in the church. Paul founded the church in Acts 18. You can see how he did that, but he founded, he started, then he left, went to Ephesus. Uh, He was there for about a year and a half. While he was there, he stayed with Jewish some Jewish friends, Priscilla and Aquila, Jewish believers. His associates were also there, Silas and Timothy. The most serious problem the Corinthian church was having was worldliness and an unwillingness to divorce themselves from the culture around them. Most believers did not uh, separate themselves from their old, selfish, immoral, and pagan ways. Uh. So before, uh, and then I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Paul wrote more letters to the church of Corinth than the two letters we have. Um, Flip over to uh, chapter 5, verse 9. He said in chapter 5, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company in sexual immoral people, but I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of this world. He says in verse 11, Now, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. So he's referencing that he wrote something before this letter. So there is some previous letter he wrote to them. Uh, And then also go to, uh, okay, it's the only time we'll go to 2 Corinthians. I'm not supposed to do 2 Corinthians, but go to 2 Corinthians 2, 3. Next book, a little bit to the right, chapter 2, verse 3. Paul writes, and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. Again, he's referencing another letter and scholars think this is more of a severe letter. Uh, he ripped them a new one and it didn't make it into our canon. I don't know what all it was, but uh, he got them. So actually some think that maybe it was parts of 1st or 2nd Corinthians, but there are several letters that go back and forth. The early uh, followers, believers of Christ, and then the churches that started, they des- as they decided in their meetings, which of Paul's letters to the church of Corinth would make it into the canon. And what we have is what was de- determined to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it made it into the, church, into the Bible. So we have that. Key doctrines would be sexual sin. I've already covered that a little bit. And then proper ways to worship. Uh, God deserves your wholehearted worship, not part of your heart. I've already... They're bound down to Aphrodite. They got uh, all these other gods, and, such and such. it's just a mess. And so, uh, there's two of the, There's a lot of themes in the book, but two of the primary themes. Some application from the Book of Corinthians. Uh, there's a lot of problems in this book, and Paul addresses many of them, which we're going to get to. But I think some over uh, some themes that kind of jump out. Unity should always be the goal of Christians. Unity. Uh, the first problem he's going to address, is they, they all have their favorite preacher. I like Paul, and I like Silas, and I like whatever. We don't have that problem in America, do we? Because everyone likes Keith, and that works good. So, uh, No, but uh, they, they were putting all their faith into whoever their follower was, and Paul says, no, that unity should come, that we're all serving Christ, we're all under Christ, and he can use everyone with different gifts in different ways. So unity in the church. Uh, another point I think application is the church should not mirror the world. There should be something different about the church. If there's not, there's a problem, Corinth. There's a problem. Uh, so he's going to address that. Uh, we should obviously love those that fall into sin, but and, and we want to restore them. You want to reco- have reconciliation and relationships. Uh, but you need to be mindful that God has called us to be a holy people. And sometimes if there needs to be a church discipline or calling out of a sin of a church member, then you do it for, uh, for in, in the right way, but you do it for the, uh, the witness of the church, the, the, the yeah, that. Uh, third, navigates life's gray areas biblically. Uh, in case you didn't know, God doesn't cover every issue in the Bible. There are some issues that you have to take godly principles and put it to it, and say, okay, well, what should I do in whatever the situation is, like a mask mandate, or a vaccine mandate, or a, these are just some modern day, current day things we're all, and if someone is for the vaccine, or against, or for the mask, or against it, uh, if we're in Christ, we should be in Christ before it becomes, I hate you because you think vaccines are from Satan, or God, or whatever you think, okay? There should be some gray areas that we have to take godly principles Now, for sure, there are some key doctrines that you should not waver on. But as you go through those gray areas in life, you should think maybe utility and charity. First, utility. Uh, What you're considering going, will it help you achieve the ultimate goal of representing Christ? I think Paul would say that becoming more like him or sharing about Christ. If it does, then yeah, go for it. But then, secondly, uh, if you do it, will others be hurt? Paul is going to spend a lot of time on, don't cause a brother or sister to stumble. Uh, And he's going to get to, well, that's another issue, but uh, they had some Lord's Supper communion issues, some meat that was being offered to the idols. They're they're buying the leftover meat, and then they're using that in Lord's Supper and offer sacrifices to God. Is that good? seems like it's not good. Well, Paul's going to answer that. Kind of a gray area. Uh, so that's just kind of an overview of it. Now we'll look at seven of the problems. Uh, and there's a few more than that, but I'm just going to have just pick seven tonight. Uh, the first one is congregational disunity in this church in Corinth. Uh, Paul was there for a year and a half. He leaves and goes to Ephesus. He gets, he gets letters. He gets notified. He gets a text from Chloe's family that it is going bad in the church in Corinth. Now, Paul has... As he started this church, and as he started many churches, he has a deep love yearning for these people to, to grow in Christ, to not be babes in Christ, to not just do milk, but get to the meat of the Word, to be uh, becoming sanctified, growing in the Lord, not to be so much like the world, not to keep the old self, but make, let the new self, through the Holy Spirit, change you from the inside out. He's getting word that they're not doing it. There's all sorts of church problems. Look at chapter 1 of First Corinthians. The rest will be in 1 Corinthians. Chapter uh, 1, verse 10. Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren. I'm in New King James Version. Plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you perfectly are joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. You're having some issues. I'm getting word of it, Paul says. But uh, it starts with that they're they're playing favorites with uh, who they want to follow, their favorite preacher, pastor, elder, whatever. Uh, It's human nature to try to associate with those that are like you and to make the people that are like you the most important, best people in the whole church. That happens. But uh, we should all realize that the church is a conglomerate of all sorts of different people, economic status, status, racial status, or, uh, family origin status, uh, all sorts of different backgrounds, interests, talents, gifts, you name it, we're a mesh. Okay, that's what every church is. And I think God wants it to be that way. And sometimes even at a church, you think maybe our leaders aren't the, they're not the brightest, they're not the most financially leader, and I'm going to go with that guy and not that guy, or I don't quite agree on that guy, what he's saying about that, so I'm going to go with this guy, and then before you know it, there's a lot of disunity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And then verse 31, that is, as it is written, he who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. So, I don't, they were playing some favorites. okay? Paul, Lev, maybe I love Paul, but now he's gone. And now this new guy, whoever he is, I don't like what he's teaching. I don't like his personality. I don't like his whatever, you name it, whatever it is. Paul here says it's not about that. Well, he's too weak or he doesn't, he's not knowledgeable enough or he doesn't seem gifted enough. Well, if God called him, then you trust that God calls even the weak, and you can go throughout Old Testament, New Testament. <laughs> David was the weakest little scrawny dude, and he's the guy that's going to take down Goliath. Uh, Daniel, you know, a little scrawny little youth guy, and he's going to survive in the lion's den. Go through it in the New Testament. Okay, God's going to call his uh, disciples. Well, he's going to call the mightiest uh, financially warriors, the most brightest, and who does he call? The fishermen. Now, some fishermen can be bright. I'm not saying that, but uh, that's probably not who we would have called. And I think that's Paul's point here is in, in the week, God gets the glory. And even in church leadership, sometimes, and you, all too often you can hear podcasts about it or watch it, that church leaders, it goes to their head and they think it's their ministry and not God's ministry anymore. And God is not glorified by that. And then eventually, the it, yeah, the church suffers. God doesn't want that. So, he talks here in the first part, they're having some congregational disunity based on who leads, and Paul would say, don't do not do that. It's the first issue they're dealing with. But then the second issue is sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 2 through 4. He tackles this issue because it's, it's affecting their spiritual growth or lack thereof of spiritual growth. They're having disunity. Uh, they just want baby food. It's like when you, when you were a baby, uh, uh, you know, your parents were just so stoked the minute you said your first word or you crawled your first little five feet or you did whatever. How would that be if you're an adult and you're doing that same thing? Wouldn't that be sad? Spiritually, there are many adults that are just crawling on the floor and saying their first words. And Paul's not okay with that. And a big factor here that he addresses is, this, uh, is, is they're just immature. They haven't grown in the Word. They haven't grown any. They're still on the milk. They fail to recognize the, dif- uh, the difference between God's inerrant wisdom and the world's passing and fickle understanding. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 13, it says this, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. These things we also speak not in words which means wisdom teaches, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for the glory, it says in verse 7. It's not always the most Twitter-friendly thing if you're doing an expository sermon And your goal is to really just preach the convicting word of God so that people will, if they're dealing with sin, be convicted of sin and yearn for God's grace and forgiveness and then repent of that sin and want to walk with him. It's much easier to just say, here are the four things on marriage or here are the five things to make your kids obey you. And that will get the people in the seats because they all want to know that. Or here's the way to survive Facebook and here's the way to survive whatever. Make it all trendy, right? It's not the purpose of the Word. I think the more we live, and now we're in the 20th century, but as the years go by, the Word of God becomes less and less appealing. Jesus Christ said the road is narrow. It's not a wide gate. Stop trying to market the Word of God. The God of the universe will penetrate the souls of those that need it. Um. He talks about three types of people. He says there's the natural man, the supernatural man, and the unnatural man. The natural man, in verse 14 of chapter 2, he's governed by the appetites and the fears of the flesh. He just does whatever feels right, whatever feels good, whatever impulse I have, I do that. And I just go with that. It's, what it, it's what's right. Um, they can't appreciate God. There's no connection with God. It's like a blind man at a sunset. No idea what's going on, just going through the days, surviving life. The natural man, no connection to God, uh, no connection to, to God spiritually. But then he said there's a supernatural man. This is the one that is spiritual, is, uh, and uh, he, he's rightly judged by no one except God. Uh, The Holy Spirit is inside of him. He's put his faith, his belief in Christ and what he did on the cross. This person loves others, uh, enjoys Bible study, fellowship, sacrificial service, worship, and prayer. This person is striving to follow their Savior with their whole heart. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I want to follow him. And then the, the third one that Paul talks about here is the unnatural man. The unnatural man is caught somewhere in the middle. I am saved. I believe in Christ. He was crucified, resurrected. I'm saved by grace. But I struggle with unsaved tendencies. I have this, this flesh that I battle with. I have this history I battle with. I have these people, relationships I'm with, or these circumstances that just tend to pull me backwards and I can't walk with God. This is where the church at Corinth is. They believe they're saved but they're not growing because they like sin. They're enticed by it. Paul calls them carnal. They are uh, they're just living by the flesh. Whatever feels right is what they do. Um, but they are saved enough, they have enough spirit in them that they're actually miserable living this life. <laughs> they don't like, they're saved, they don't like to live with sin. Uh, I've often said, well, yeah, um, they're carnal Christians. It's what he calls it in three one driven by the appetites of the flesh. So Paul's going to address all all these things, and this is why they're so spiritually mature. They're just given into their flesh. They're not fighting the good fight, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy, better to to be disciplined, to put in the spiritual disciplines in their life, whether that's reading the Bible or prayer or regular church attendance. Those things do not save you. I am not preaching or teaching a works-oriented salvation. But I would say... It's also not easy believism. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe you. Forgive me my sins. Now leave me alone and let me do what I want. That doesn't mesh up, right? Jesus, you're my Lord and your Savior. Where well, the word Lord means he's in the driver's seat. He controls through his word, through his Holy Spirit in you. He says, that it convicts you in my conscience. It says, I'm not good with whatever that is. You fill in the blank. We shouldn't be good with it either. But the more we dabble in sin, with temptation and give into it, the more we justify it and we become okay with it and it entangles us, which is why Paul would say run from temptation. We are weak, but the Lord is strong. So they're spiritually immature, but then thirdly, they're sexually impure. Um, Chapters 5 through 6. I already said Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas, okay? Uh, Sin City would be a great word for it. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. The Romans aren't even doing it this bad. And here's what's really bad, that a man has his father's wife. We're all adults in here. Uh, He's sleeping with his stepmother. That's not good. Even the Romans don't do that, he says. And you are puffed up. You have not rather mourned about it that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he's very specific in uh, this incest that's happening. uh, And uh, he's cohabitating with his stepmother. This relationship is not honoring to God. And what's worse is they're puffed up, they're arrogant about it, and they're not going to do a thing about it. And what does that do for their witness in their city? It doesn't, doesn't do good. So, uh, you're puffed up. That Greek word there, and he's going to later use the metaphor the leaven. Uh, Jesus described that sin's contaminating effect is like leaven. Uh, leaven is yeast, basically, and and it causes the bread dough to rise. And it only takes just a little bit to affect the entire loaf. It's a great analogy. It just takes a little sin to infect many. The Corinthian church, they were impressed with their tolerance of this brother's sin, and Paul called them out. Verse 6 of chapter 5, Your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? But it's not just that. They were doing more too. Uh, Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, they're actually suing other believers in the secular courts. So the church is suing other church members in the secular courts for the world to see that this church is messed up. Great witness. Probably not the best idea. Uh, He calls them out on that as well. Paul instructed them to have a zero-tolerance policy. He said in verse 18, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality, he sins against his own body. Sexual immorality, that word in the Greek is pornea. Same root word that we use in pornography. If you're not sure if pornography is a problem in America, uh, you need to be more aware. And if you have teenagers and children, you need to be having conversations because the world is making it very easy to be worldly. Very easy. And I could tell you the billions that are in the porn industry. But more than not, in the books I've read... Uh, and it's not just men, it's also women, okay? It's this, this ideal whatever it is that I don't have right now that I can get into this, and that's typically, it's escapism, it is, and it's just making what God made good, making it really, really bad. In marriage, it it tears up marriages, but not only that, but if it's teenagers and kids that get hooked into this, it does something and their dopamine kicks in, it's like using a drug, it's worse than using a drug. You can't get the image out of your head. You have hardwired it into your mind, And it never goes away. And so boys that look at that before they're married, they have an idea of what sex is. And then girls that look at that have an idea of what they should be and what sex is. And then the two eventually get married, and we wonder why there's problems, (laughs) all sorts of problems. It's a huge problem. It was a problem here. It's nothing new under the sun. But the Internet has made it much, (laughs) much more where it can be your secret sin. No one else has to know it. You don't have to go buy anything at a 7-Eleven. You can just have a phone. All right, I went off on my tangent there, but uh, it's, a, it's a problem then. It's a problem now. Uh, it really is. Sexual impurity involves the theft of, a, of an inti- in a intimacy level that should be only reserved for God. And it only should be reserved for God, if you're talking about sex, that should be only reserved by God in the covenant marriage between one man and one woman. I hope I'm not clear on that. The day we live in is very unclear about sexes and picking your pronouns and whatever. This is so obvious that our culture has just totally said, I will, not, I will buck everything that God the Creator put into place for our good. I'm going to buck it. There is no authoritarian anything, God, person, government, anything. Although, if the government says this, you better do it. That's another story. But no one can tell me anything. It's whatever I feel. It's whatever my appetite is. It's whatever I determine. I am running my own course. No, no. He goes on. The next thing is marital infidelity. (laughs) The sexual immorality that's happening, the lack of spiritual maturity that's happening, then, of course, it filters into some marriage problems. Uh, Chapter 7. Now, Paul is going to talk about being single or being married. Paul was single. Paul was okay with being single. And in his day, it was probably advantageous to be single. The Romans are persecuting Christians. And if I am married to a wife, then I have to not just run for my life. I have to run for our lives. We have to run together. Paul would almost say, if you can stay single and control your passions, then stay single. But if you can't control your passions, then get married. Great advice. Uh, so he addressed both being single and being married. He was happy in his singleness. It helped him to focus on his ministry. But he says in chapter 7, verse 7, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am single, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to be married than to burn with passion. Marriage is a commitment that curtails individual freedoms. You are now living for someone else, with someone else. To help them walk and grow in their walk with Christ. And there is, and I'll say it later, but there's a mutual submission. I'm submitting to God. She's submitting to God. We're submitting to God. There's a lot of submission that happens in marriage. It's not just the wife submit to the husband. Although Paul does address that in Ephesians 5, but I'll get into that later. We all should be submitting to the authority of Christ in our lives. Um, So then the fifth thing is Personal liberty. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. He covers this liberty. Sometimes the solution to an issue is not plainly black and white. I said sometimes there's some gray areas, and there's some gray areas that are happening here in the church in Corinth. Uh, They're offering in these pagan temples. They're sacrificing this meat and offering to them, and then they sell it to the Christians, and they buy it. And then they're wondering, should we offer this to our God that was just offered to an idol? So you can imagine those that grew up Old Testament, all their ways, all their laws, and all their whatever, like, oh, no, you're not doing that to my God, right? So what do you think Paul says? Well, uh, we'll see. He doesn't uh, have a huge issue with it because he knows the idols aren't real. (laughs) Like, those aren't real gods. If you want to use their meat and offer and to the true God, Jehovah, fine, do it. But he would say, don't do anything that's going to cause someone else to stumble. If offering that meat that was just offered to the idols causes some other Christians in the church to really have a problem, then don't do it. Which is, I think, a good, a good way of looking at it. His concern primarily was not the meat. It was the way some of the believers were behaving. Um, they were flaunting their liberty in the offense of other believers. And he says in verse 9, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul's going to go on with this idea of there's a greater law, a new way to live, and that is through love. Of course, we're coming to 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. But... Uh, He's building up to it here. He says in verse 11 here, he says, Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Paul's saying, it's better to go be a vegetarian than eat the meat that offends your Christian brother. Okay? And you could apply that to today in Midland, Texas, in Midland, Texas, slash America, slash the world we live in. And we've tried to live that out. This has been an unusual year and a half, I think we could all agree and we're not out of it yet, and there's differencing stance on vaccines and masks and governmental mandates and all these things, and probably we have a wide variety of that. So what's the right thing to do? Well, God doesn't mention coronavirus. I haven't found it in here yet, Um, but I think you submit to your church uh, leaders. The church leader submits to God that called him. And you do the best you can, and then as, us as a, as a unified body, we, we, we stopped for a while, then we came back, and probably about half the people were in mass, half the people are not. You, you sanitize things, even though some people are like, why do you have to do that? I don't believe anything's happening. Okay, yeah. You just try to walk through it best you can with God's wisdom and his principles, and I think we're still doing that even now. But you don't let those things of the world disunify the church, because the enemy does want to disunify the church. They don't agree with me on that. Well, is that a Christian doctrine thing or is that a preference? If it's a preference and it's like, you know. uh, Now, if they don't believe in in the, uh, the sacrifice of God's son, that he died and was resurrected, I think that's a big deal. That's a deal breaker there. But if they think the drums is better than the pipe organ, you know there's been church splits about that very thing, right? You know who wins when that happens. The enemy does, not God, not, not the church. But we can, get, we can make little things into big things. Some things are big things, but not everything is a big thing. Okay, moving on. Uh, he talks about love and uh, don't cause your, your brother or sister to stumble, which I think applies to alcohol here and as well, or tattoos. Can you, should you, might. Uh, I'm, I think I know some tattooed believers. I'm pretty sure there are. So there's, you know. In my day, it was you can't dance. And what was the other thing you couldn't do? Drink alcohol. Can't do those things. And be a Baptist. Was that the things? I think so. You can't watch. Now, that's tough. I mean, but there are a lot of movies you shouldn't watch. Yes. But uh, pretty much, yeah. Okay, I'm moving on. It's not in my notes. I'm moving on. We all love to, do, to bring up the topics that there are a lot of things that are clear in God's Word and some things are not. But I think the, over, the principle you could go with is if it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble, if they see that or see me doing that, then I shouldn't do it. So that's my stance on that. And I think it would be Paul's as well. The sixth thing is imbalanced community in chapters 11 through 14. Several issues that is affecting their community The first is the women don't want to submit. Don't be mad at me. It's in God's word here, okay? I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on this because I don't want to, uh, but it is in God's word. Uh, So 11.3, let's look at that. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 6, for if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. This is not talking about hats, although I think it's you shouldn't wear a hat in God's house. That's a general rule. Uh, but uh, in this day, the women covered, they had a shawl, or they covered their hair, and it was their culture, it was what was respectable and showed respect to the man over them. Now, we live in a whole another day that's got Taliban and all sorts of messed up stuff, okay? And we also have to then balance this with the feminism movement and the pretty much bashing of all men that happens in America, okay? Scripturally, go over, this is the only time I'll have you turn, but flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Anytime in marriage counseling, you're going to talk through, and this is what I wrote my dissertation for my doctorate on, chapter 5, verses 22 through the, you know, the rest of the chapter, uh, how women and husbands and wives should relate and bring honor to God. The key verse that no woman, woman likes is verse 22, wives submit to your own husband as to the Lord. But if you note the verse right before that, verse 22, Paul says that, both the man and the woman, all of them, should be submitting to one another in the fear of God. Men are not off that they don't have to submit to their wives. No, no, no. Who you submit to is God. And if you're right with God leading your wife, then your wife will want to submit to your headship. It doesn't mean, the other thing I would say is, it's not an inferior uh, yielding to a superior. That is not what this is. This is not the picture Paul's painting. The picture he's painting here is an equal submitting to an equal. We're equals unto God. But part of a woman's worship is I submit to the headship of my husband. I don't worship my husband. He's not Jesus for me. He doesn't die for me. No, 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 no. I yield to him, and a part of my worship is I yield to his leadership as he's being led by God. If you think of the Godhead, he's going to use the same very word here. He's going to say Jesus submits to God the Father. Jesus and God are equals. John chapter 17, he's saying that prayer. as He's at the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's saying, Father, your will, not mine. He's equal with God. He's doing that as obedience, as worshiping God. That's the God God created, and he wants his purpose to be worked out through his life. Well, as a husband and wife, ladies, as you worship God, you submit to your husband. Now, here's the, and this is the greater. What if your husband is lost as a goose, or there's abuse, or there's whatever. I don't have time to get into all that right now tonight. But um, then that's not the way it's supposed to be, yeah. But I would challenge the woman, and now if there's physical abuse or sexual abuse, that's a whole other thing. But if it's uh, cut-downs all the time and it's just difficult to live with this guy or he is uh, so bombastic, so arrogant, he doesn't love, he doesn't care about me, he only cares about himself, um, I think the scripture would say you work through that. You try to obey God and worship God through that. Divorce is always depicted as the last case scenario. Or not to do it at all. But I'm not getting into that because there's a gray area in there too. Sexual immorality was for sure the one that you could have divorce. But pretty much the scriptures in the two places it talks about divorce. It says do everything you can to not divorce. But Moses made that way because we were, we were prone to sin. And we live in a fallen world. Moving on. Uh, so, women not submitting to their husbands. He talks about that first. But then the second thing they're having, they're misbehaving in the preparation of the communion. The Lord's Supper, the observance of one of the two sacraments, sac- sacraments baptism and uh, communion that Jesus Christ himself ordered the church to observe. The way they were doing it is they would have a love feast slash potluck dinner, um, bring all your favorite fried chicken, uh, and uh, and alcohol and whatever, and it would be like a whole day shebang thing, dinner on the grounds kind of thing. And then at the end of it, they just pig out, they get drunk, and at the end of it, uh, we would we would tag on communion. So while that's happening, if the unchurched are there, they're not being you know we're not sharing what we have, we're being selfish and we're being drunk. And we're not making God look very important to the world. And so Paul had an issue with that. Uh, He said in chapter 11, verse 22, he says, What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Not commending words. So he warns them to look at themselves and they shouldn't be doing that. Verse 29, for he who who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. God cares how you treat uh, his sacraments. You'd be better to eat at your home and then come and do the Lord's Supper. The third thing they're dealing with uh, is spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts in the assembly by different people. Um, Spiritual gifts were given by God, uh, governed by the Holy Spirit, and they were meant to build up the church. Uh, it says in 12 verse 7, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. God gives a lot of different gifts. He, Paul lists them all, whether it's prophecy or speaking in tongues. And in chapter, four, uh, chapter 12, he's going to go off that they're speaking in tongues and their prophecy gifts are just out of whack, going crazy. And there's all this disorder happening in the church. Um, I personally believe that the speaking of tongues and the interpretation, I think that was meant for that time, that place, the Spirit allowed that to happen so that the gospel would spread. Personally, I do not believe in the speaking of tongues, although sometimes I think my family members think I'm speaking in tongues sometimes, but I'm not. I'm just trying to use words. Uh, Sorry about that. All right, so spiritual gifts, uh, they're a mess. Um, He uses the metaphor that the church is a body. Paul often used that. And Christ, of course, is the head of the body. Uh, The human body needs all sorts of parts, right? Uh, Even the gallbladder is somewhat important. Uh, The church needs each member to play his or her part well. Don't spend all your time uh, being jealous of someone else's gifts. What a waste. God gifted you or gave you talent so you can do what he equipped you to do in the church, for the church, through the church. And not everyone has all the gifts. Uh, So, there's that. It says in 1226, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Uh, Again, this idea of love is going to come up. And Paul would say, doing it all by love, using your gifts for God through love, is the most excellent way. He ends it in verse 31 of that chapter. And then he goes right into probably the most well-known wedding verses always spoken, the chapter on love. But it's in this context that the love chapter comes. It's how you're using your gifts for the church. It's so that you're being more like Christ once you be and less like the world. And if, if, you, know, if you just look at love, and agape love is what we're talking about, it's the sacrificial, I lay down my life. I think of others before myself. Uh, it is not this infatuation Expression of action, choice, it's not inflammatory, it's not fleeting, which is what culture, the media, makes love look like. It's impulsive, it's whatever you want, it's self-seeking, and that's totally contrary to what God says real love is. And how do we know that? Well, you look to Jesus Christ, how he loved. He gave his life. The sinless one died for those that are full of sin. It's a sacrificial love, it's a thinking of others, a self, selfless love, others oriented. Paul points to the fact that anything you do or accomplish is empty without love as a motivating force and ultimate objective. He says in chapter 13, verse 13, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus himself, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prayed, that his love would be in the love of those that follow him. He, show, he showed us how to love this way, an authentic love that uh, sacrifices for God and for God's people. The last problem they're having is a doctrinal perplexity. The last two chapters, their main issue is with the resurrection. Their issue was not with that Jesus Christ arose from the dead in three days. They're okay with that. Their issue is that the dead bodies would one day arise and be in heaven. That there would be immortal bodies that would join with the souls uh, that, are, that died ahead and went to heaven. So that's their issue. So they had some resurrection problems. Paul is not okay with their problem. Um, chapter 15 is probably one of the greatest chapters on the resurrection ever written. Uh, It's an extensive, comprehensive chapter on bodily resurrection in all the Bible. It's very detailed. Uh, But he starts with, uh, in verse 12 and 13, we didn't start there, but look at 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If the dead don't be resurrected, then Christ wasn't resurrected. If Christ isn't resurrected, then there's no Christianity. Either. This is all just a hoax. This is all just a... Uh, and why, why did the early church followers die for this? And why, why are, in early church history are they mean martyred for their faith if it's just a hoax? No, it all hinges on the resurrection, not just of Jesus Christ, but also of the believers one day. One day our bodies will be immortal, resurrected with our soul and our spirit. No resurrection means your faith is empty and your witness is false, he says in verse 14 and 15. Without it, you're stuck in your sin. And I don't think Paul would say, oh, death, where is your sting? A lot of people, and I would say I'm included, is death is not a comforting thing to think about. Death is a frightening thing. Even for believers, death is a frightening thing to think about. Why? Well, I don't think we were created that our soul and our and and our spirit would be jerked away from our bodies for that long. How's that gonna work? And there's so many unknowns, right? He says he goes prepare our mansions for those that will follow him. Okay. And then when Jesus comes back, and then my body is resurrected, and then I have this immortal body. How does that all there's a lot of unknowns there, but we have faith and trust that it's going to happen. It's going to happen, but the death, death is something that no one likes. Um, yeah, I won't share that. Um, he says in verse, in, in verse 25 that dying is the enemy. Death, where is your sting? Because of the resurrection, because we have hope in Christ that he was the one that showed us that there is a resurrection one day. And he did it, and his followers will do it for eternity one day. Until then, when we leave this body, our soul leaves this body, if Paul calls it that we're sleeping. Okay, um, and one day when Jesus returns, the dead will—the dead bodies will rise, and will have eternal bodies. First um, Corinthians fifteen twenty. Now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits were the high quality sample of the harvest that the Jews the Jews would offer to their God. The first fruits. Jesus is saying that, or, or Paul here is saying, Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrected life, and it's available to everyone else that believes in Him. He set, he set the standard, he set the way. In other words, there's a whole crop of people uh, who are out there waiting to be harvested. Corinthians, you're part of those people. One day you will be resurrected if you believe in Christ and you follow Him with your heart. The resurrection is, is crucial uh, for the gospel message. It was the power, and it would enable the Corinthians to step up their game and follow Paul's instruction for their improvement. And you could think the first Corinthians, the letter, man, he bashed them pretty good. <laughs> They're a mess. And there's a lot of churches today that are pretty messy. There's no church that's perfect, and if when you join it, you've made it a little more imperfect. Uh, uh, we're all imperfect, even if we're saved. But that was the way God wanted the gospel message to thread. To, to spread, and, and the church will not be defeated even by Satan. It will last. So there's no perfect church, but even this church in Corinth, and you're going to see in Second Corinthians as, as next week, uh, they work with this guy that's co- cohabitating with his stepmother, and they work through it, and he gets reconciled and forgiven. They work through their problems as a church corporately. Um, so a lot of issues there. I want to look close with go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And a few more comments and I will be done. Verse 2 of chapter 1. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints with all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts his, many of his letters similar to this, but he knows he calls them sanctified and saints. And then in verse 4, I thank my God, or I am grateful to God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him and all utterance, utter, utterance and all knowledge. I thank my God, I am grateful, grateful to God, after he's gonna, he starts it this way and he's like, but here's all the mess going on in y'all's church, okay? But I'm thankful and I'm grateful to God that he's working with y'all and through y'all and corporately as you, as you try to live out what I'm teaching you in God's word and, and allow the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out and you start obeying him. Uh, God's going to sanctify. You're going to grow in him. You're going to become less like the world and more like uh, God's uh, children, which is what he would want. So, contrast that with, go over to Galatians. I'll do Galatians. Sam does 2 Corinthians next week, and then I do Galatians, Ephesians after that. Galatians, notice how he starts his his, uh, letter. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Similar in his start, grace of Jesus and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Notice what's missing. He is not thankful for them. And... Uh, and he marvels that they're turning away from the gospel that he taught them. How are they turning away or adding to the gospel? Um, the church in Galatia was, had Judaizers and they were teaching to the new Gentiles that would come in that you had to be circumcised to go by the old covenant. And they struggled with the way the history and the tradition was of the church that you had to become uh, circumcised and in the Jewish customs in order to be saved. They were adding to the gospel, which I think is a, is a, is a warning for any of us. Well, two things. Number one, if you think our church has a lot of problems, which I would say every church has problems, probably you're part of it, but um, every church has problems. And I think if you look at the church at Corinth, you realize we're all just trying to grow in Christ. And some things need to be addressed publicly, a lot of things need to be addressed publicly. Uh, privately, Um, but the goal is to to have unity in the church, unity as we're growing towards Christ, and do it corporately. But then you contrast that with Galatia, and they're saying you've got to add to and you've got to do this thing that was not necessarily clear in the Scriptures at this point that you had to do that. Instead of asking questions, they just say, mandating it, that it had to be that way. And for that, Paul says, I'm not grateful for you. When you add to or subtract from the grace of Christ, uh, that's a dangerous place to be. So, um, I think that's hope for us in the church. And then just a reminder also that uh, don't make it, if you have a childlike faith, you can be saved, Jesus would say. Don't make it salvation so hard that I can't do it. Uh, If you're saved by yourself, then it can be really hard. But if Jesus Christ did it, uh, he makes it pretty simple. You just put your faith and trust in what Jesus did and that I can't save myself. I can only trust and believe that he died on the cross for my sin. And I want him to be my Lord and Savior. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not okay with just being like the world. I want to be different from the world. I want to get rid of uh, uh, sexual immorality in my life. I want to get rid of uh, different cultural things that are not honoring to God. I want to submit to his word. If it says I need to submit to my husband, I do that out of worship to, my, to God and, to, and to, to honor the witness of the church. If it said whatever the word says, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to add to, I'm not going to subtract to, I'm not going to be okay with sin. I'm going to ask for forgiveness and yearn to follow him with my whole heart the rest of my days. So there's a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians. Sam will do Second Corinthians uh, next week. I've said enough words, and it's 7.30, so I'm going to pray. And if y'all have kids in Awana, you just got to hang around a little bit. Uh, and if you have youth, just, or if you want to go get a burger, go see how many burgers you can eat. They're having a burger cook-off. It sounds fun. sounds like a stomach egg waiting to happen, so bring your Tums or whatever. Let me close with prayer, and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for even this book of 1 Corinthians and for inspiring Paul through the Holy Spirit to write it. But just like every book, it wasn't just written to the church of Corinth. It was um, preserved for us so that we might learn from it as well because there are tendencies for us as a church and as individuals to water down your message, your gospel, to get off track. And I thank you for your word that reminds us, that can convict us, of sin that so easily entangles us. But I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you don't give up on us and that we are all works in progress, individually and also as a church. May we be patient with those that we might have a little disagreement with. May we be forgiving like you forgive us. May we let uh, the fruits of the Spirit be exhibited in how we live our lives because, God, you're changing us. And uh, it's okay to be uncomfortable with the world we live in, but you also called us to be a witness and a light and to share your gospel truth in how we live, but also in the words we say, that we could be a testimony and a herald for your gospel message of love. Thank you for Jesus Christ and for his word. It's in his name I pray. Amen.